You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. If you've got your Bibles, you can turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. We have, over the past couple of months, we have walked through uh, covenant theology and, and looked at Scripture from the perspective of covenant and have used that to move us into understanding the implications of the new covenant for us as a church family, uh, why we do the things that we do. And so we looked at um, why we uh, baptize the way that we do and why we don't baptize the way that other churches do. And trying to allow that to be uh, based solely and strictly on our understanding of covenant and not strictly on the way that we were raised in our home churches. And so um, hopefully we, we were able to establish a foundation of covenant that led us to a clear understanding of how baptism works in the new covenant. And now we've been looking at how the Holy Spirit acts in the new covenant versus the old covenant. And we've said you know, kind of through this whole series that the Holy Spirit existed in the Old Testament. It's not that the Holy Spirit began to exist at Pentecost. The Holy Spirit did a lot of the same things from a standpoint of salvation in the Old Testament as he does in the New Testament. It's not that uh, people were saved without the work of the Holy Spirit in their life prior to the New Covenant. So the New Covenant um, is not new in the sense of how salvation works. People still needed the Holy Spirit to open their eyes to Christ, to the need for the gospel, to the need for salvation because of their sin. And that spiritual regeneration has always been a work of the Holy Spirit. But there is difference in the new covenant with the way the Holy Spirit works. We see that instituted and initiated at Pentecost. Um, we said that it's not by accident that the new covenant is, is inaugurated on the day that they would have been celebrating the old covenant, celebrating the giving of the law to Moses, the, the day of Pentecost, um, the Holy Spirit comes upon Christ's followers in a new, uh, a new way and expresses himself in a new way. We looked at the speaking of tongues that took place at Pentecost. We said that if you read the book of Acts, that the, the predominant focus is not on the Holy Spirit causing tongue speaking and miracles to happen. That the predominant theme that we see through the book of Acts is that Christ's followers become bold witnesses to the ends of the earth. That that's the major shift in the new covenant. It's that God's people move from being inward focused. It's all about us. It's all about Israel. It's all about you coming to be a part of the nation of Israel to now being outward focused to now it includes everybody. And let's go tell everybody. And let's be bold in that proclamation of the gospel. We said that's the big difference. Because even before Pentecost, think about it, even before Pentecost, Peter and some of the disciples were doing miraculous things. Christ had sent them out and they were doing miraculous things, casting out demons, healing people. So that wasn't even the major change that happened after Pentecost. It's that they became bold witnesses that were no longer scared to die for Christ. They were empowered by the resurrection. And they took it to the ends of the earth. So we've, we've been challenging you. Are you living like an old covenant believer or a new covenant believer? 
and not trying to draw out tongue speaking or miracles or these other giftings, but challenging you with, are you living like a new covenant believer being that are you bold in your witness for Christ? Have you embraced the responsibility to take Christ to the ends of the earth? Because that's what a new covenant believer looks like. That's what it means to be walking in the spirit in the new covenant, that you become a bold witness. Now, obviously we still have to examine and contemplate and figure out how the giftings of the spirit fit within the local church today. And so we spent a lot of time looking at those miraculous gifts, those giftings that frankly scare us a little bit uh, because most of us weren't brought up on those type of gifts. Those were for the weird churches that, that we didn't understand, and so we, we've stayed away from that. But wanting to have a better understanding of this, not, again, because of the way we were raised, but based on what God's Word has to say about these things. And so we've examined some different uh, views on the giftings. We said there's a group that would label themselves as the continuationists, those who say, that the giftings that we see in the book of Acts and the early New Testament are gifts that continue today. And we should fully expect to have them actively going on in our local churches. They would say, unless scripture states otherwise, we should desire all the gifts and assume they're still available. These guys would say, New Testament never communicates that this stuff's going to stop. At least not before Jesus returns. And so if it doesn't tell us that they're going to stop, we should expect them to continue. The cessationist group says that these things don't happen anymore. doesn't mean the Holy Spirit no longer works miraculously, but it does mean the Spirit no longer gives gifts as a normative experience. So <clears throat> this group would say, look, this isn't something that happens regularly, week, week in and week out at your local churches. That, that stuff has stopped. We should not expect people to have the giftings of tongues and miracles and these type of things any longer, those things passed away with the apostles. But that doesn't mean that God doesn't still work miracles, doesn't mean that he doesn't still do those type of things, he just doesn't do them specifically through individuals in a gifting type way. Then we said the third group is kind of the in-between group, the group that still has a lot of questions and isn't comfortable maybe answering all those questions right now, that's the open but cautious view. This This view says that the New Testament doesn't say that they've ceased, but it also doesn't say they won't cease. They're, they're, this group is open to these type of things still happening, specifically, though, them happening in places where the gospel is coming for the very first time. They kind of piggyback off the idea that in the book of Acts, we see tongues being, being done in areas where they were first receiving the good news of the gospel of Christ. That was a sign that, that the gospel had come to that area, that the miracles and the, the healings were meant to validate this message of the gospel. In a time when Judaism was predominant in, in the people who were God-fearers, but now there was a shift to the new covenant. And then also in context where paganism was rampant in the Roman Empire, and so there was a need to validate the gospel with these miraculous signs. But once the gospel was validated, they were no longer needed. And so this view would say, we don't need this in the United States specifically. The gospel has been validated here. It came here with our, with our forefathers. There's no need for these type of signs to continue. Now, we go overseas. We go into tribes and areas where they've never seen the gospel, and they are rooted in paganism and false gods and idol worship. Then, yes, we would be open to that potentially happening in those areas. That's the open but cautious view. 
<clears throat> I told you at this point our church would probably fall into that category, that we're not going to be real strict in saying that, that people are wrong, that believe that some of this stuff continues. But we're not willing to say that this should be the normative experience every Sunday that we gather. There's some openness there. There's some real caution there. And there's some, some ideas that some of this stuff has probably ceased when it comes to being the norm. Now, we've been kind of looking at this more as an overview. Today, we're going to stop dodging some of this and really get into what Scripture has to say, beginning in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Now, some initial thoughts to give you, and then we're going to, we're going to look at chapter 12 together today. I told you that we want to cover chapter 12, 13, and 14 over the next few weeks. We're going to try to look at it from a verse-by-verse standpoint, but not teaching through it so slowly that we go verse-by-verse like we do when we're working through a passage of Scripture. Um, I think it's important to, to express to you guys that I think we essentially believe the same things that the conservative charismatics believe. I really think that we are saying the same thing. We're just saying it a little bit differently. So when we talk about the Wayne Grudems, the John Pipers, these guys who you search them on YouTube and they're talking about uh, this stuff a little bit differently than maybe we were we were raised on, I don't want us to panic and think, oh, man, like we need to embrace what John Piper and Wayne Grudem and some of these other guys are saying. We've been wrong about this. I really think we're saying the same thing. We just may be saying it differently. What I mean by that is I would say that our church 100% believes that certain things happen and certain things don't happen just like they say they do. We believe that God still does miracles today. And we believe that God still heals people today. And that he does that through our earnest prayers to him. We believe that. We believe that God heals. We believe that God does miracles. We're not, we're not a church that's going to say, Nope, God's out of the miracle business. He's out of the healing business. No, we, we readily embrace the fact that God does these type of things, and we should pray expectingly that God will do these things according to his will. But we would also say that nobody today has a special gifting of being able to touch and heal on command. Right? Like, Piper and Groom and these guys would say this as well. We don't believe that anybody in our church or anybody in any churches in the truest way, has a gift where they can heal and do miracles on command. We just don't believe that. I don't think that's consistent with what the New Testament says. And again, it's not consistent with what some of these conservative charismatics are saying. You know, Grudem and these guys are saying, hey, the gift of healing means that you have an ability where your prayers get answered more than other people's prayers. Okay. I'm comfortable with saying that there are some people that pray earnestly that have a um, a special amount of faith even to where they seem to have their prayers answered when they go before God. They pray confidently, expectingly, and they see answers to prayer maybe more consistently than other people do. I'm fine with saying that. But like I said last week, I don't think that we have to call that the gift of healing when that is so drastically different than what we see happening in the book of Acts when we talked about the gift of healing. Remember we said that Peter and Paul, I mean, their, their, their shadow was healing people. Their, their garments were being sent to people, and being simply in the presence of that was healing people. I don't think we have that today. So if Grudem and Piper and these other guys want to say 
The gift of healing still exists today. Some people pray, and God heals when they pray. Okay, I'm totally comfortable saying that. I don't know that we have to label it the gift of healing, though. These people that we're, that we're talking about, and me and Denise were even talking last week about somebody that, that she knows that would, that would maybe claim to have this type of gifting. It's not somebody that you just send your sick to and they put their hands on them and they're healed like we see in the book of Acts. We just don't see that happening in conservative, Bible-believing churches that are more open than cautious to these giftings. Now, we see it in some of these churches that we would say, those guys aren't, those guys aren't basing this stuff on the gospel. That's a false teaching. That's a false religion. They're doing things there that, uh, for all we know, are, are, are motivated through demonic power. But in the churches that we would support and believe that are preaching the same gospel that we are, that are more charismatic than we are, this is what they're saying about the gift of healing. And I would say that we agree with them on that. We're just not at the point where we want to call it the gift of healing in the same way that the New Testament talks about it because it just looks a lot different today. We don't have people walking around with their shadows and with their hands healing people. Secondly, we believe that God spontaneously leads us to say things at times that, that's completely prompted by the Spirit. I shared with you in the, in the past couple of weeks some times where I feel like the Holy Spirit has just been guiding me in a conversation where or maybe I was saying things and, and sharing things that I had not prepared to share or say that ended up being right even about somebody's future. You know, talking about the gift of prophecy. There have been times when I've been talking with somebody and I feel like I've been, I'm, I'm, I'm having information that I wasn't prepared to talk about, wasn't prepared to say. I did not prepare for this conversation, but I'm talking very authoritatively about it. And maybe it even ends up becoming something of reality in their life down the road. I think we would all say that we're comfortable with the scenarios like John Piper presents where he's preaching and says, maybe one of you works in this building and you've been thinking about starting a Bible study. You should do it. And somebody comes up and says, I work in that building. I've been thinking about a Bible study. This is confirmation. I should do it. We don't have to shy away from that stuff and think, ooh, like that's what's going on there. We don't have to label it as just strictly coincidence. We can say, Holy Spirit's working in that situation. I don't know that we have to call it the gift of prophecy, though. I don't think we have to call it the gift of prophecy because in the New Testament, the, the Scriptures talk about prophets being given to the church. Now, if I share with you these examples, I don't expect any of you to start saying Prophet Benson, right? Like, what we're talking about does not warrant the title of prophet being given to me. Another example I was thinking of this week. Um, last year in February, <clears throat> I don't know why, beyond the fact that the Holy Spirit was just prompting me in this area, for whatever reason, last February, I felt compelled to go to my leadership at school and say, if there's ever an opening for administration, I would be interested. And then three months later, our, our administrator leaves. We hire somebody, so I'm thinking, oh, man, like I thought I was right about that, that there might be an opening soon, but they've already filled it. And then a week before school, this guy ends up not showing up, and immediately I'm called to come in and serve as the interim principal. I honestly don't think that happens if I don't go forward in February and have a conversation with my leadership. I don't think that the first person they think of is me without me expressing those desires. So I think that that's 
prophetic? Do I think that's the gift of prophecy? No, I think it's motivated by the Holy Spirit. I think the Holy Spirit's guiding me in my life and the choices and decisions and the steps that I'm making. But that's the type of stuff that some of these guys that we respect greatly would label the gift of prophecy as. The ability to have spontaneous stuff come upon them from the Holy Spirit, promptings where they would speak to people about possibly even future events, stuff that they would say should be tested, should be measured against Scripture, they would call it the gift of prophecy. Again, I'm okay with saying that the Holy Spirit prompts us to interact with people and gives us things to say and maybe even gives us insight into future endeavors. I don't know that we have to start calling people prophets that seem to be able to to do that in the local church. Just because that title seems so much more special than what we're actually talking about being able to to do through the power of the Holy Spirit. Does that make sense? Like I'm not willing to call John Piper a prophet just because he knew or or was prompted by the Spirit to know that somebody in his church worked on the exact floor of a certain building and wanted to start a Bible study. He's totally fine with saying the Holy Spirit prompted him to know that and to use that as a affirmation to this lady. I just don't know that we have to call it prophecy. So we believe God spontaneously leads us to say things at times, but we would also agree with these people that God does not communicate authoritative, special revelation any longer, right? And that's what we typically think of when we think of prophecy in Scripture, that God is specially revealing, specially speaking to individuals that are then to turn around and be the voice of God, to be the mouthpiece of God. We would agree, and we would say that that doesn't happen anymore. Nobody is getting special revelation that needs to be communicated on the same authority level as God's word. That just does not happen anymore. When the canon was finalized, special revelation stopped. Grudem, Piper, these guys would say the same thing. They don't have people in their church with the gift of prophecy that communicate special revelation that God has given them. Now, there are people out there today that claim to have this ability. There are Christian authors today that claim to have this ability and write books on it, and people eat it up. They eat up the idea of special revelation. There was a guy, I think I've shared this story before, there was a guy that came to speak at Liberty um, that had written a book that basically said the Bible is old, it's dusty, we need new revelation, we need new words from God, and here it is. And he spoke in our spiritual emphasis week, and, and me and, my, and Rob from Snowbird, like, we were, were abhorred by this. I mean, we, we went to our administration and says, have you, have you read this book? Like, this is awful. This guy doesn't believe in the sufficiency of Scripture. This guy doesn't believe in the Trinity. There are people out there that are presenting this type of message. People are embracing it. False religions come from this. Mormonism. Joseph Smith. I've got new revelation, a new book. We'll, we'll let it go with the old book, but it's a new book. You talk to, to, to Mormon missionaries that come to your um, your doorsteps. They'll talk about the Bible, but they'll also put the Book of Mormon right on the same level. We don't believe in that kind of prophecy, and neither do the conservative charismatics that are out there. Um, the area that we would probably disagree is on the area of tongues right now. Okay, So I'm comfortable with with some of these things continuing to happen. Uh, miraculous things, healings, even the the notion of of demons being cast out in certain unique situations where that may be going on. 
I'm not at the point where I'm comfortable saying that the gift of tongues and interpreting of tongues continues today. Now, again, I'm trying to base this on Scripture and not just the way that I was raised. Some of the questions that I have not been able to get answered from people who do speak in tongues. Again, I work at a school where this happens in the church setting, and I've started to dialogue with some of these guys. I'm friends with a local pastor here who uh, believes in the speaking of tongues, and so I'm trying to dialogue with him to better understand where are you guys coming from on this. The questions that I'm asking, though, is what is the purpose of speaking in tongues today? If and, and from my understanding, what these guys are saying is, is that the speaking of tongues is when God is spontaneously giving people information that needs to be communicated to the church. Well, that seems to happen through the gift of teaching when you've got gifted men who are bringing God's word and communicating to the people. It would also seemingly be happening through prophecy if that gift is what we're talking about, that God spontaneously through the Holy Spirit, gives people things to communicate to others within the church. And what I've gathered from these individuals that believe in the speaking of tongues is that the actual message, once it's interpreted, there's no distinct difference between that and what they would call prophecy. That what they actually get out of the speaking of tongues. So if they're doing it right, somebody speaks in tongues in church, somebody stands up and interprets, that it's not any different than somebody who is prophesying in their church, just giving words of encouragement to the church. It's just that one's doing it in a language that nobody understands, and the other one's doing it in English. I don't see the purpose of, if God's wanting to communicate to his people, he's got the avenue of teaching through elders. We're, we're also saying that he's also got the avenue where he can speak it to people through this spontaneous Holy Spirit gifting where he's communicating truth to others as words of encouragement. I don't see the next step of why would he need to do it in a, in a language that we can't understand and then it be interpreted and it basically be the same thing as what other people are saying in English. Now, again, that doesn't mean that there, there it is, like we don't ever have to worry about tongues again and think about it again because that's the definitive point. I'm just saying that's the question that I'm asking right now and the question that I'm asking others that believe in this area is what is the purpose of it in comparison to these other things going on in the church. How is the message different than teaching and prophecy? And then what we see a lot more in charismatic churches is the, the private prayer language that we talked about last week. This, this thing that I do in privacy. And, and Paul talks about it in 1 Corinthians 14, and we'll get there in the coming weeks. I'm starting to think more and more that Paul's being sarcastic when he's talking about that. Because everything that we've seen so far about spiritual gifts, they are given for the edification of the church. They are giving for the upbuilding of others. And he talks about this private language, this private prayer thing as something that you do on your own, edify yourself. You don't even know what you're saying. Essentially, at that point, that gift is given not for anybody in the church. It's really not even given for you because you don't know what you're saying. It's essentially given for God. Because only God would know what you're saying. And that seems inconsistent with everything else we've seen about spiritual gifts. That they're given for the upbuilding of the church, for the maturity of the church. You would then have to have this little subcategory that this gift is the only one that falls into it. Where it's a gift that you exercise on your own, separate from the church, to edify yourself and to edify God. And it would be very 
contrary to all the other gifts that we've looked at and talked about. So those are questions that I'm asking. Again, that's not um, that's not me reaching a definitive thing. Hey, I feel like I understand tongues completely now. These are questions that I feel like I've not been able to get answers to from those that I respect greatly that believe in, in this thing continuing. Um, so in the other areas, I would say that we are um, saying the same thing, just maybe not labeling it the same way, except for the area of tongues where I've yet to figure out the, the necessary purpose for those to continue. And I told you last week, too, that I think prophecy and tongues were were present in the early churches because there was a, a distinct absence of qualified teachers in these churches that were springing up. I mean, you have Paul going out. We said in Thessalonians, he was there six months. He shares the gospel. People get saved. He disciples them for six months, and then he leaves. He doesn't leave them with the copies of the New Testament ESV free version. They don't have anything about the New Testament to read. All they've got are scrolls maybe about the Old Testament. So you would expect there to be some necessary need for God to say, here is, here is stuff that you guys need to know about the new covenant. You don't have the written version yet. I'm going to give it to you through tongues. I'm going to give it to you through prophecies um, in the absence of the fact that you don't have my New Testament word to feast on right now. Um, so we'll continue to look at this as we work through uh, 1 Corinthians. All right, so 1 Corinthians chapter 12. This is the most extensive passage in the New Testament about spiritual gifts. Now, the purpose of spiritual gifts, we've said this before, the purpose of spiritual gifts is to equip the church, to equip the church, to carry out ministry, to equip the church, to carry out ministry while growing into maturity, to equip the church to carry out ministry while growing into maturity until Jesus returns, to equip the church to carry out ministry while growing into maturity until Jesus returns. First Peter 4.10 As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So these gifts are given to us so that God is glorified through Jesus. In 1 Corinthians 1.7, So that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in that day of our Lord Jesus Christ. So these giftings are given to us. We don't lack in anything as we wait for Jesus to come back. And then in Ephesians 4.16, Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. We have a couple of ideas there. The, the, the gifts are given to us to equip us to do ministry as a church as we do this together. 
We do this so that we grow up into maturity, and we do it until Jesus comes back. Now, we're going to look at some of the, the list of gifts today. Um, but i got to admit to you that there's still some questions that I'm asking about this, and I don't know that the answers are in Scripture. Now, what we're going to see today is that a lot of speculation has to happen because Paul does not give us some of the details that we crave to know about this topic. Now, when it comes to gifts in this church and how we're going to use them moving forward as we become more aware of them, a question that I'm still asking myself is, do I receive gifts at my salvation that I've never demonstrated before? Is this how spiritual gifts work? Do we get saved and then the Holy Spirit all of a sudden gives us things that we've never shown any gifting in before? Think about it. Do you have somebody who is so completely disorganized, has no ability to be an administrator, but all of a sudden gets saved and is now given the gift of administration? Is that how this works? Or do you have somebody who's an unbeliever but has natural abilities in some of these areas? They're organized. They have abilities to administrate. Maybe they're even serving in those capacities in their secular workplace. They get saved, and now some of these natural abilities become empowered by the Holy Spirit to be used for God's glory within the church. There's perspectives on both. Some guys out there will say, no, 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 no. You can't count stuff that you've had since birth as a spiritual gift. These things come upon you when you get saved. If you had them before birth, they're not spiritual gifts. If you get them after you're saved, then you count them as a spiritual gift. Others would say, no, 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 no. Spiritual giftings means that you've got stuff that was given to you sovereignly, knowing that you would be saved one day, given to you sovereignly by God's own wisdom and choice. And now that you're a Christian, those things become empowered by the Holy Spirit to be used for his kingdom and glory. We tend to, to lean more towards that perspective on this than the other. Just basing it off my own life. Um, granted, I got saved uh, at, at an early age, but I don't feel like um, with, with, with other people that I've experienced as well, Guys that I know that have the gift of teaching seem to have exhibited some of that ability before they were saved. They had the natural ability to, to communicate truth. Granted, it wasn't spiritual truth, but take, take a teacher. Let's say you have, you're, you're in the workplace and, and you're sharing the gospel with a fellow teacher at a public school. This person gets saved. I would naturally think, hey, as this person grows in their understanding of Christ and the gospel and the word – I would think that they will be an effective teacher for God's kingdom. They've already demonstrated a gift of teaching. As opposed to somebody who, who has never exhibited any of that, all of a sudden getting saved and says, hey, I want to be a teacher this week. I think I have that gifting. Be like, eh, like let's explore that a little bit because, you know, last week you were really um, scared about talking in front of people. Like you, you broke out in hives over that. Like I don't know that you have – the gift of teaching to start standing up and speaking to people. Now, again, I'm not saying that that doesn't ever happen, that it never happens, that God gives to somebody who's never had that type of thing before, but I don't see any reason to dismiss it and say, oh, you were in administration before you got saved. That's a natural ability. That's not a spiritual gift. Um, but again, there's two perspectives out there about that, and that's something that I'm still kind of working through trying to understand. When do we get these gifts? 
and how do we label something a spiritual gift versus it just being a natural ability? Secondly, do we work to develop them or do we automatically have full gifting in them? See, I would tell you that I have the gift of teaching. But I also have to admit to you, I went to Bible school. I went to seminary. I've sat under other teachers. I didn't get just get saved and all of a sudden become a teacher. It wasn't that I was given this gift by the Holy Spirit and now go out and use it. I feel like it's been something that's kind of come as a fruit of the work that I've put into it. I would say that I have the gift of teaching, but that I've been taught how to teach. That I've had to develop that gift in my life. Others would say this stuff just comes upon you and you're, you've got it. Use it. But it doesn't really take a whole lot of developing on your own. And then lastly, how gifted in an area do I have to be in order to have that specific gift? I mean, I can stand here and say, I believe I have the gift of teaching. But if you put John MacArthur up here and, and you say he's got the gift of teaching, then I would probably have to step back and say, I don't have the gift of teaching. Like, he does, I don't. So how gifted do you have to be, really, to say, I've got the gift? That's a question that I'm still asking, and I don't think Scripture's real clear on. I don't think Scripture says, this is what the gift of teaching is, and then if you have somebody that comes forward that wants to be an elder and they look like this, you tell them no because they don't have the gift of teaching. It's not real clear in Scripture how gifted you have to be. So there's some speculation that has to happen in some of these areas. All right? 1 Corinthians 12. It's important to note some problems that were already going on in Corinth before we get into chapter 12. First of all, there was serious problems in this church. Paul's made aware of them by friends of Chloe, according to 1 Corinthians 1.11, that friends of Chloe had come and informed him about problems going on in this church. And then they also apparently sent questions to Paul, similar to what we saw in uh, Thessalonians, they must have sent a letter to Paul because in 1 Corinthians 7, 1, now concerning the matters about which you wrote, and then Paul begins to expound, seemingly answering questions the church at Corinth had asked. Now, does anybody remember the difficulty about this type of scenario that I shared with you in our discussion at Thessalonians? What makes this setup difficult for us as the reader 2,000 years later? If Paul is answering questions, and that's how he's writing this letter. What's, what's the, the missing element for us that makes it difficult to understand this? You know, we don't know what the questions are. These answers, like Jeopardy, like here's the answers, but what are the questions? Because the, these are answers to questions. So Paul is not sitting down and saying, let me teach you about spiritual gifts. Here's everything you need to know about spiritual gifts. Same way in Thessalonians. He doesn't sit down and say, here, let me tell you about the second coming. He says, you should already know this stuff because I've already taught you about the second coming. But here's some information based on the questions that you've asked. So we have to approach this similarly to how we approach the book of Thessalonians, specifically 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5. These are answers to questions, not systematic chapters on this theology. We have to approach it with that mindset. Paul is assuming, I've already taught you about spiritual gifts. I'm just answering questions now. This is a follow-up. This is the second, third, or fourth teaching on this, not your intro to this topic. We want to treat it like an intro. Like, we come to it and we're like, Paul, like, I don't know anything about spiritual gifts. Like, teach me, tell me. Paul's already taught a lot about this. 
Unfortunately, he's already taught a lot about this. Um, there's some pagan practices that have been dragged into this new church experience by these believers. They're coming out of a very pagan religion with activity that is that has no place in the local church. But because they were saved out of it and they don't necessarily have strong leadership in place to reject it, some of this stuff is transferring over. Think about it. If you work through 1 Corinthians, you would see things like <coughs> philosophy that was causing divisions in the church. I mean, he starts off with people saying, I'm of Apollos. I'm of Paul. These guys were attaching themselves to um, church planters like they used to attach themselves to philosophers. You, know, you had disciples of Plato and Aristotle. and This was this was the type of culture that they had. So this thing was being dragged into the church. Who do you label yourself as a follower of? Whereas Jesus had said to his disciples, we're going to break the trend of you being disciples of me, and then you go in and making your own disciples that follow you. They follow me. They're not disciples of Peter. They're not disciples of Andrew. They're all disciples of Jesus. But you have this philosophy mindset that transfers over to this church. You have complete misunderstanding and abuse of sex. Their pagan religions used sex as an opportunity for worship in their culture. They had a low view of sex. It was do whatever you want to. They had prostitutes available at the temple that anybody could use freely whenever they wanted to as an act of worship. People that visited the city could go to this temple and engage in these acts freely. They're thinking, what's the big deal? I'm sleeping with my stepmom. Like, why is that a big deal? And Paul says, this cannot happen in church. This cannot happen in the new covenant. This is distinctly different than what you were saved out of. But they were dragging this stuff into the church. Lawsuits, it was a sport in Corinth to take people to court to see if you could win. It was something that they did for entertainment purposes. Paul says, as Christians, we don't sue each other. Get it out of here. Get it out of here. We don't do this as, as new covenant believers. There was marital conflict. There was abuse of liberty. There was feminism that was rising up, a lack of modesty and submission by the women in the church. And Paul was having to correct all these issues. Important to understand that the, that the topic of tongues comes up in this whole string of correcting issues in the church, abuse in the church. Abuse was happening in the area of spiritual gifts. Paul writes with the purpose of addressing abuse in this area. Overall, the church seemed more concerned with the extraordinary. They viewed it as the highest form of spirituality. Now, 1 Corinthians 12, 1. This is the key verse if we're going to understand 12, 13, and 14. First Corinthians 12, 1. Now, concerning spiritual gifts, brothers... I do not want you to be uninformed. It's important. Paul's saying, I am going to write the next three chapters with the purpose of informing you. Now, we read through it and we say, Paul, I got a list of questions here, buddy. I got a list of questions that I don't know the answers to after reading through 12, 13, and 14. What we've got to understand is that Paul is, is intentionally wanting to inform us about some things. And he's obviously not seeking to inform us about other things. He's giving specific information based on questions asked and abuses that have been shown. So the question that we've got to answer over the next few weeks is, what are we being informed about in regards to spiritual gifts? 
What is Paul trying to inform us about? Let's go back to 1 Thessalonians 4 before we look at this. 1 Thessalonians 4.13. It's the same language here. 1 Thessalonians 4.13. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus... God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive who are left until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God. The dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive who are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So we will always be with the Lord, therefore encourage one another with these words. Now, we talked through this year, year and a half ago. This is eschatology. This is return of Jesus stuff. Peaks our curiosity. What happens in the future? Paul says, I don't want you to be uninformed about this. Then he proceeds to teach them. What are some of the specific, distinct things that we learn from this passage? What are we informed about? By Paul here. Anybody? Give me something. And what about those that have already died? Okay? When uh, when Jesus comes back, those that are already dead will get their glorified bodies first. We learned that from this passage. What do we learn about people that have already died as far as their location right now? What does Paul inform us about where are they? They're with Jesus, right? They're coming with Jesus when he comes back. Paul says, I want you to know where your loved ones are right now. Don't panic. Don't grieve like somebody who doesn't understand the future. You know where your, your, your saved family members are, or you need to know. They're with Jesus. They're coming with Jesus. They're getting glorified bodies just like you are. In fact, they're getting them before you do. Because the mentality was, hey, we're going to be faithful, but you know, my uncle died last week. What about him? Like, is he not going to be around for the return of Jesus? Remember, these guys thought Jesus was coming back in their lifetime. They, I don't think they had any concept that it was going to be 2,000 plus years later. So these guys are panicking. Hey, I'm still here. I'm still young. I'm still vibrant. I'll probably last till Jesus comes. But granddaddy's not going to last much longer. What's going to happen to him? So Paul's writing to inform them. He says, I don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep. I don't want you to grieve like those who have no hope. So he gives them specific information. They're with Jesus. They're coming back with Jesus. Jesus is coming back for us. Kind of describes how he's coming back. Cry of command, voice of an archangel, sound the trumpet of God. Dead in Christ will rise first. Those who are alive who are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So we will always be with the Lord. Now what are some things he doesn't tell us? Because I walk away with questions from this passage, right? Like, what are people in heaven doing right now? I mean, I mean, what are they doing? Okay, they're with Jesus. That's great, Paul. But what are they doing? What are we going to do when Jesus comes back, Paul? Are you talking about the rapture here? Are you talking about the second coming? Are we going back to heaven or are we coming to this earth? Are you going to recreate the heavens and the earth right now? 
We ask those kind of questions, and Paul doesn't have the purpose of telling us those at that time. He says, I've got some information to inform you about. And I told you when we walked through this, let's cling to the stuff that we're told. Let's speculate some about the questions that we still have, but let's cling to the special revelation that's given to us. Let's find hope and encouragement, because Paul says you encourage each other with this. Don't sit around and speculate and and get confused about the future. Encourage each other with this. Same thing's happening in 1 Corinthians 12, so let's go back there. He's going to inform us about some things, and we need to cling to the stuff that he informs us about, recognizing that we're going to have questions that are still there after looking at this. Questions that we can speculate about, it's not questions that I can give you authoritative answers on because Paul doesn't give it to us here. I'm going to tell you up front some things that we're not going to be informed about. We're not going to get a definition and an explanation of these gifts. We're going to read about these gifts in a list. Paul is not going to break down for us what the gift of prophecy is. He's not going to tell us what these gifts are specifically. He assumes that these people already understand them because they're already using them. That's a disadvantage to us in a sense in that we're not going to get these questions answered, but we're given the advantage clearly that Paul has informed us about spiritual gifts in some way, and we need to cling to that information. We're not going to be given the details of practically using these gifts. Yeah, I come to this passage and I want to know, okay, Paul, if we're going to have tongues and we're going to have interpreters, how do I identify interpreters in my church? How do I train interpreters in my church to be better interpreters? We're not going to find that in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, 14. Paul doesn't give it to us. He doesn't give us how to practically use a lot of these gifts in the local church setting. He assumes they already know it to an extent. We're not going to get a lot of answers in that regard. We're also not going to um, learn how to know what gifts you have. He doesn't give us the spiritual gift test that supersedes all other spiritual gift tests that you've ever seen in your churches. He doesn't say, here's some questions to ask yourself to know if you have the gift of administration or to know if you have the gift of healing or to know if you have the gift of serving. He doesn't give us that. He does inform us about some important things, though. I think that's what we need to cling to over the coming weeks. Let's read through this chapter and see if we can figure out on a kind of an overview basis, what is Paul trying to communicate to us? What is he trying to inform us about? Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Now, there's debate because Paul doesn't specify here. Were there actually people standing up speaking in tongues or prophecies that led to things like Jesus being accursed, verbalized in the service? Or was Paul trying to assure people that were afraid If somebody stands up and speaks in tongues, they might say stuff like Jesus is accursed. And we won't know it because we don't understand what they're saying. But there's one perspective that says Paul's trying to assure people that are scared of tongues to not be. That the Holy Spirit would never lead somebody to say Jesus is accursed. Other view, MacArthur's view, is that people were actually standing up, abusing these gifts. And the conclusion, the interpretation was 
That guy just says that Jesus is accursed and everybody being okay with it. That it was a form of Gnosticism that was infiltrating into the church where Jesus' spirit was viewed as okay, but his body was viewed as a curse because the Old Testament says if you're hung on a tree, you're cursed. So there's speculation as to is Paul trying to say, don't do this because you're doing it, or is Paul trying to say, this will never happen because the Holy Spirit would never do this? We're going to talk in a minute what I really think he's overall trying to uh, communicate there. Verse 4. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but is the same God who empowers them all and everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by the one Spirit. To another, the working of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, the ability to distinguish between spirits. To another, various kinds of tongues. To another, the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body through many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slave or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gift of healings? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? But earnestly desire the higher gifts. And I will show you still a more excellent way. Now, <clears throat> I'm going to give you a minute to look back through this. Let's don't approach this with, let me get all my answers that I've ever had about tongue speaking. Okay? Instead, let's approach this as, what is Paul trying to tell us? What is he trying to inform us about this passage? So let's do the same thing that we just did with 1 Thessalonians 4, but I'm going to give you some time to do it on your own before we look at it together. I'm going to give you a few minutes to do this. I want you to write down general, broad truths that you feel like flow out of this passage. Just like 1 Thessalonians 4, Jesus is coming back. He's bringing our loved ones with us. That's broad truths. We don't look at, well, are we going to look the same in our glorified body as we did when we were here on this earth? How old will our glorified body be? 
It says we'll be changed. What does that mean? Will it be will we be able to recognize each other? So those are questions that we come to First Thessalonians four wanting to get answered, but we don't get those answered. We get broad truths. So let's look at the broad truths. You jot down some, and then we'll we'll um, encourage each other together with what we found. All right, give me some of the stuff you found. What are some some basic truths you think that flow out of this passage that we can cling to that are clear? Okay, good. So give me Denise's version of that. What's the truth there? Okay, so we could say... Gifts come from the Spirit. What does that protect us against? Yeah, that protects us from pride. That protects us from, from feeling more awesome than somebody else, right? Like what we're capable of doing in this church 
is because the Spirit has gifted us, gift, gifted us in that area. Which means I don't get to uh, lord my gift of teaching over somebody because they're not capable of doing what I do on a Sunday morning and think that I'm more crucial and important to this church body and what this church does. I'm, I'm not unique and special in and of myself because of me. The Holy Spirit has gifted me to do this. We don't need everybody to have this gift. We, can't, we wouldn't have time on Sunday for everybody to get up and do what I do. So it's not me with the right to feel prideful of, look what I get to do on Sundays. It's, huh, I'm the one that God chose to do this on Sundays for our church. I'm the one that was given this gift to exercise this gift in this way. And Lord willing, God will continue to raise up more um, to help lead this church in that area. That's why we have elder candidates right now. Men that we believe that God is raising up that have this gift amongst other gifts to help assist in this area. But they come from the Spirit. Uh, gifts are given to serve others, right? For the common good. To take care of each other. That's the purpose of them. So again, it's not to promote ourselves. It's not to earn favor in the eyes of others because of what we can offer. They're given to us to serve other people. My gift of teaching is given to me so that I can help grow you up in the faith. So that I can expound upon scripture, explain it, teach it, so that you can learn from it and grow from it in an authoritative way. Not like special revelation, but maybe more so than just you reading and studying on your own and kind of being like, I don't know if this is what this says. You're able to come regularly and hear the gifting of the Spirit exercised on a Sunday morning in a less authoritative way than special revelation. You should test everything that I say, but you can feel more confident leaving than maybe you do sometimes from your own personal study of that's what this means. Adam has checked with other people. He has researched this. He has studied this. He has prayed over this. He's poured over this. I can be confident this is what this means, um, given to serve others. Other thoughts that come from this passage? Right. Yep, so we could say, and I have this written down too, every gift... We could also equate with every person is important. And that's easy to forget, especially as churches get bigger. It's we need these guys to pull off what we do on a Sunday morning. Everybody else is just kind of a spectator to what we do. We don't have to have them. That's not what you see in the New Testament, though. It's everybody is necessary for a church to do what it's supposed to do. Every single person has a role to play, and everybody's role is important. They're not expendable. They can't just be dismissed and, oh, we can keep doing what we're doing without that person. No, there should be grief when somebody is lost because part of what we were doing can't continue because that person's not here. Every person's important. Every gift's important. What else? Okay? We're not going to all have all the gifts, right? Like nobody is super gifted Christian.
it's if it's something that Paul informs us of. Just kidding. What's your question? No. Uh, we're going to see that he um, – they have, they have taken a gift and elevated it, specifically the gift of tongues, elevated it to super status in the church and has made it the gift that should be desired by everybody. And Paul downplays it and says, look, this gift has a role, but there are other gifts that, that edify better than this role. And you guys have it backwards. Like you think this is the one that everybody should want. Paul says, really, you should all want these. Like these are these are actually more edifying. Not to downplay it and say, well, if you're the guy with the gift of tongues, like we don't need you. Like you should be wanting these other gifts. But instead, saying, don't everybody desire to be the little toe? Like don't think that the little toe is the greatest, most important thing on the body and make people that, that are the heart and the lungs think, man, I wish I was a little toe. It's so much better than me. It's, hey, there are things that are detrimental to a church if it's not there. Like, you can you can live without the little toe. There are other things you can't live without. You know, like, it would be hard to be a local church without gifted administrators and leaders and teachers in the church. Right, like if it was just a bunch of people that were servers, like it'd be hard to be a local church growing into maturity. But that doesn't downplay that we need people that are gifted in the area of serving. It's just saying, don't make a a, a lesser gift the most prominent gift. It's still an important gift. Does that make sense? So they had elevated something that should never have been elevated to the status that it was. All right, what else comes from this passage? Okay, so um, together we function as one body. We serve together, we suffer together. You know, and I challenged you guys recently that we've got to get to the point where you know, when Adam Long was without a job, that we don't just feel sorry for Adam and Tiffany on Sunday when they say, hey, pray for my husband to get a job. And we pray, and we're like, oh, man, I hope they get a job. And then we go back to our normal week like there's no big deal. Nothing's happening in our life. We've got food on the table. we got our bills paid. That we want to get to the point where we love each other and serve each other and are so involved in the lives of each other that when somebody is without a job and is not sure how their bills are going to be paid, that it weighs as heavily on us as it does on them because they're part of our body. So the gifts are given to us so that we see our need for each other. It joins us together as one body. We serve together. We don't just become this rogue guy who's out doing ministry on his own. We're aligned with the local church because we need the, the gifts of others. And it helps us to see that when we suffer as a body, we suffer together as well. I think it's important that Paul's saying at the beginning that the Holy Spirit doesn't say Jesus is accursed and Jesus is Lord. I think he's showing us that the gifts are given and they are given in unity and purpose. 
meaning we don't work against each other with our gifts. They're given for the purpose of unity. We're not going in separate directions as a church with the gifts that are given here. So it's not one person saying, hey, I think God's telling us to go do this. Another person saying, no, God's telling us to go do this. That the, the Holy Spirit is the source of all this gifting. The Holy Spirit distributes to who he will. He distributes the gifts that he wants to give to those who he gives them to. And he gives them with the purpose of unity in mind. That he wants to join the church together, not split it in two. So whether there were people standing up saying Jesus is cursed or not, I think the overall message that Paul's saying is you're not going to have somebody stand up and say one thing and another person say the other and try to take the church in two different directions. That The Holy Spirit's not in that. He's not the author of confusion. There should be unity in the purpose when these gifts are given. Um, one of the things that I wrote down, every Christian is gifted, every gift is important. We need the giftings of each other to be effective as a church. They're given for the purpose of serving. These are the type of truths that flow out of this passage. We're left with questions, yes. Just like in 1 Thessalonians, we're left with questions. What do our glorified bodies look like? Paul doesn't tell us. He just tells us we're getting them. How do these gifts look in the local church specifically? What is the definition for these gifts? We're left with some question there. But what we are to cling to is that every person in this church is important. Every single person is important. They have something to offer to this church that we need. That God, I believe, sovereignly brings people to be members of our church. And our church isn't for everybody, right? Like, like we're not concerned. That's why we don't have a sign out. That's why we're advert- we don't advertise our church trying to bring people here. We're trusting that, that we're going to evangelize. And see people saved, and they'll be a part of our church because of our evangelistic efforts. And then anybody else that comes, we're trusting the Holy Spirit's leading them here. So when we have people visit, they may visit and never come back, and that's okay. We've had some people that have visited, like Miss Carolyn, that have, that have become members here and are important members of what we're trying to do here. We've had others that visit that said, you know what, we're going to go visit somewhere else. We're looking for something different, and that's okay. That's okay. We're okay with believers coming here and going somewhere else. We're trusting that, man, they're going to get taken care of somewhere else. But we do believe that God is bringing people to our church that we need to be effective in this area for his kingdom. And so we're trusting that the Holy Spirit is going to guide them here, and he's going to guide them here with their giftings so that we can be effective as a church. So these are the things that we cling to from this passage, that God wants to unify us, He wants us to see that everybody's significant. Nobody's not important. Nobody's not important because they don't have a certain gifting. Everybody's crucial to what we're trying to do here as a church. We need the giftings of others to be effective as a church. We can't just have one or two or three people doing everything here. That's not what the leadership's here for. We'll see in just a minute. Ephesians says it should be totally different than that type of mindset. All right. um, We're going to wrap up with this. I'm going to give you, I gave you the list of gifts that are kind of given in different areas of the New Testament. I'm going to give you a quick definition for each one. Again, not a strong biblical definition, but a definition that kind of flows out from speculation by other people that are well-respected. This is probably what this gifting looks like in the local church. Again, it's not defined for us by Paul or anybody else, so we have to speculate a little bit what is meant by these gifts. Okay, so the gift of teaching, this would be the supernatural ability to explain and apply the truths given uh, 
in Scripture to the church. So it's the supernatural ability to explain and apply scriptural truth to the church. Gift of teaching is talking about in Romans 12, Ephesians 4. It's not um, not somebody that has superior knowledge necessarily to everybody else. This is not somebody who becomes the spokesperson for God like a prophet. This is somebody who understands truth, has been taught by the Spirit, and is gifted to explain it and apply it. And obviously there's different levels to this. Different levels to this. I mean, there, there's people that are better gifted at teaching than others. So when I say I believe I have the gift of teaching, it's not that I'm on par with others that have it way better than me. But I believe that God has given me a desire for it, and he's given me the ability. And I've talked with others who believe they don't have it that confirms to me that I, that I have more of it than, than not. Just in the sense of the ease of how some of this comes together for me as I'm studying during the week. Like I labor over it and I study over it, but I'm able to typically put together what we, what we study together on Sundays in a week's time, sometimes in days' time. And that's a gifting that that's no credit to me. That's that the Holy Spirit allows me to see Scripture and pull things out from Scripture in a quick way, in a fast way, in an explainable way. That's what the gift of teaching looks like, I think, in, in the local church setting. Um, the gift of helping or service. This is in 1 Corinthians twelve twenty eight. God is appointing the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping. Um, yeah, I mean, I, people that just really desire to help and, and serve, that are, that are quick to sign up for things when, when things are made available. There's not a whole lot of expounding on it, and I would hope and assume that this is one that, that is almost possessed by everybody, just a desire to help and serve others that are in need. It's listed as a gift, so it's people that have maybe a extraordinary desire, an extraordinary ability and uh, motivation to do this type of thing. And you may know people that you would say, wow, like that person is always looking to help, always looking to serve, always seems willing to sacrifice their schedule for the sake of somebody else. I would see, I would see that being kind of that, that role within a local church, somebody who is always willing and able to give of themselves their time to help others. Uh, the gift of administration, talked about in Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, 28, administrating. This is obviously leadership and organization. These are uh, gifts and abilities that allow the church to perform and function with different ministries. I mean, there's different things that we've got going on right now, and we're trying to grasp onto people that have some level of administrative gifts to help us get some of these ministries going in our church. Um, the ability to organize and lead uh, in certain areas. Uh, the gift of evangelism. Again, like that one sounds like, hey, we should all be sharing the gospel, right? Um, we all have the responsibility and we're all called to take the gospel to the lost. There's some that are especially, especially gifted at it. And I would say that this gift lends itself more to those who end up being missionaries and church planters, specifically outside of the current culture that you were raised in. Missionaries and church planters, people that are gifted in the area of evangelism to take it to places where it's not gone before. Not just talking to your coworker about Jesus. We should all be doing that. But 
not all of us could go to an island with cannibals with our family and be effective at communicating the gospel like people like Don Richardson were. You know, Don Richardson packs up and moves to uh, the the New Hebrides Islands and and communicates the gospel to to headhunters to cannibals, and you know ends up seeing mass numbers of people come to Christ. Not all of us are gifted that way, so I would lend I would I would see this more in the area of evangelizing in the area of missions and and church planning and going outside the current culture and context. And, and a lot of people would say too that that's the way that gift should be understood. Uh, the gift of pastoring, which would be the shepherding aspect, caring for the flock, leading, guiding, protecting. And some of these kind of overlap, and some of these are like, man, can you have one without having the other? Um, the gift of exhortation, this would be instruction with practical application, an appeal for action. Not so much in the teaching setting, but just in the one-on-one type setting. We talked about this in Thessalonians, the call that we have to exhort one another. This is somebody who's got the ability to challenge somebody to action, maybe in the form of discipleship or just accountability. Um, there's encouragement and comfort, but there's a call to action to change. And some people are more gifted than others in being able to draw that type of action out from somebody. Uh, the gift of giving, this is extraordinary giving of temporal things for the Lord's use. You know, I, w- I would tend to say that this is somebody who's also been gifted in the area of money as well, so that they have the resources to give. Um, but somebody who is willing and, and seems more unattached than others even to their their finances. And I know people like this that I would say have the gift of giving, that it's they don't have to think twice about giving when they hear a need that's that's made available. A gift of mercy. Um, a lot of people have interpreted this to be kind of a specific care for the sick and the afflicted. A uh, gift of faith. Obviously, we all have some level of a gift of faith in that we've put our faith and trust in Christ, and we would see that as a gift that comes from the Holy Spirit. But this would be kind of an extraordinary gifting where there's a different level of confidence in God's love and his power working out in our daily lives. Somebody that... Um, you know, is is constantly encouraging the church because of their faith in, in what Romans eight twenty eight talks about that you know we can trust in God's sovereignty that He is working things for His purpose for our good. Somebody who who doesn't constantly have to be reminded of that and is more the source of the reminding of others about that maybe. Um, gift of prophecy. We've we've talked about this a lot. We won't go into this too much. Um, again, you know, I said that. I'm not sure that what what is typically described now as prophecy, these spontaneous thoughts to communicate to each other, would warrant someone being called a prophet. Um, gifts of miracles and healing. Um, if we're talking about it being somebody that can pray and see increased answers to prayer, then I'm good with that. Um, we definitely believe that miracles and healing continue. The gift of tongues and interpretation. You know, what we're going to see is that What's going on in 1 Corinthians is far different than what was happening in the book of Acts. That's what's really confusing to me. book of Acts, it seems to be foreign languages. In the book of Corinthians, we have this, this ununderstandable language that, that is not a language of dialect that anybody would have been familiar with. So that, that's kind of a hang-up for me um, as far as it being something that would continue in our church. 
Uh, the gift of discerning spirits, this would be you know, kind of telling what was true and what was not true. We're told to um, test the spirits to see what's from God. Um, I haven't seen a lot of discussion about how this practically looks in the church beyond um, being able just to discern uh, teachers that are coming from God versus false teaching, that type of thing. Uh, being one that's able to discern motives behind teaching that's happening, maybe. Uh, gift of knowledge and wisdom, the ability to speak to situations and offer sound guidance. Uh, again, this is the only time it's mentioned um, in the New Testament. In, um, you know, there's, there's not, not much said about it uh, as far as, Knowledge and wisdom, so just kind of working off what we would understand this to be, just the ability to speak to situations and offer sound guidance to someone about decisions maybe that they're facing. All right, I'm going to leave you with three things to, to think about. I, we're going to do something else, but we're going to hold off and bring that into play with verse chapter 13 and 14. How do we determine our giftedness? I want you thinking through these things over the next few weeks. How do you determine what gifts you have and how you can serve within this church? The Bible assumes that you'll know them. Um, it doesn't give us a criteria for how to discover them. All the authors seem to work out the fact that you will know them. So I'm going to give you some maybe some practical ways to work towards the knowledge of that if you don't feel like you know them. Um, number one, assess the needs in the church based on your interests and abilities. Assess the needs in the church based on your interests and abilities. And and I, I want to do a better job of communicating what we need people to do in our church to give you more of an opportunity to assess what you can do in our church. Um, too often, I think, I value my gift of administration over informing you of what we need, and I try to work everything out behind the scenes as opposed to sometimes giving you guys the opportunity to respond and say, hey, I want to do that. You don't have to think about who should do that. I'll be the one to do that. Too often we sit around as leadership trying to, on our own, figure out who we think should do some things, and I think we got to get to a point more where we're giving you guys opportunities to say, hey, I'll do that based on your interests and abilities. Number two, ask others about strengths they see in your life. Sometimes we're blinded to our own giftedness because we don't want to be prideful and, and think that, oh, I can do these type of things. Um, it can be helpful to ask others, hey, what what strengths do you see in my life in this context of serving within the church? Uh, and then look for opportunities to, um, number three, look for opportunities to explore your gifts. Um you know, you may not be convinced as to whether or not you have a certain gift or not, but you can step out and say, hey, "I want to, want to, I want to try some of these things and see if see if I like it, see if I'm good at it, see if I could be used in this way." Maybe I get in there and I'm like, "Oh, definitely don't have that gift. Like, I need to get out of that." Um, but you know, be willing to step out and explore some of these opportunities. And um, we're going to be assessing where we're at with people serving in our church over the next few weeks and sitting down with some of you to talk about, hey, did we jump the gun and ask you to do something that you don't feel even gifted to do? Or do you feel like this is where God wants you serving in our church? That kind of thing. 
Um, so those of you that are actively serving, you know, be ready to potentially sit down with us very soon to kind of assess where we're at and to even potentially see if we need to rearrange some people um, better as we're looking at uh, these giftings. All right, I'm going to close with this last verse, and then we'll, we'll pray together. Ephesians 4.11. He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. You can trust that I believe that the leadership has been given to this church for the sole purpose of equipping the members to do the work of the ministry so that we can all grow up into maturity, so that we can serve and do our part, our part properly. And as he says there at the, at the end, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. That's what we want to flow out of this, this teaching and study is that we all get on the same page and we're doing our part so that we can become the most effective church possible in this area in the ways that God has gifted us through his spirit. Let's pray together. God, I'm thankful that um, your word informs us of the necessary things that we need to know to be effective. And God, I know that there's still a lot of confusion in this area. And God, we're, we're seeking answers as a local church because we want to serve. We want to to use the things that you've given to us. We want to be good stewards of the gifts that you have bestowed upon us. God, I know as leadership, we want to be faithful to, um, to equip people to do the work of the ministry. And so, God, I'm asking for wisdom in this area. As we continue to work through 12, 13, and 14 in 1 Corinthians, you would give us wisdom in knowing how to identify giftedness and use giftedness in the context of this local church. God, I pray that we would be content with the answers uh, to our questions that we can get. We'd be content to um, have to wait to some degree to get some of these answers when you come back. Um, but God, I pray that you would give us the answers that we need to serve here at Sovereign Hope Church. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.